When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When we did his and hers, you know, we didn't have a lot of marketing behind us. We didn't have a lot of promotion. We didn't have our own commercial. We didn't have any of the things the other shows had. And that put a good chip on our shoulder where we was just like, we out here hustling, slanging these opinions. But girl, I heard your mama was like, oh, look here. Let me tell you something, Mr. Trump. What ain't getting right happened. And so your mom called the White House? My mother called the White House. She was upset about what Sarah Huckabee Sanders said in talking about that I should be fired. Hey, what up, y'all? It's your girl, Vivica Fox. Welcome to an all-new Hustling with Vivica A. Fox. Y'all know I'm your go-to girl for people, ideas, knowledge, inspiration, faith, love, truth, success, and of course, F-U-N. Your hustle's going to get an upgrade with the most surprising, exciting, and fabulous guests from all walks of life. You're in good hands, darlings. All right, now. Now, y'all know I love my sports. I am such a sports junkie. And my guest today is the Emmy Award-winning journalist, Jamel Hill. Jamel has helped to solidify a new path to success for women in sports and journalism. Jamel is outspoken, courageous, and committed to what's right rather than playing along with the boys and not rocking the boat. She has helped create a market for the truth. Today, we are going to learn more about Jamel and how she travels through the world unbothered. Please welcome to Hustling with Vivica A. Fox, my girl, Jamel Hill. Hey, girl. What is going on? Uh, my favorite fill-in in ESPN history, because I still remember when you filled in for me on the show, because you, as you said before um, in your intro, like you are a big sports fan, and I don't think a lot of people... Uh, may know that about you, but I know for a fact you are definitely a big sports fan. Girl, I am such a huge sports fan. First of all, I'm from Indianapolis, Indiana. You know, Midwest does it best. That's another thing you and I got in common. You know, so we, I was raised on sports. And so when I when I got the opportunity, they were like, what do you think about doing this? I was like, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I just loved it. And it did surprise a lot of people back then. And I, like you said, to this day, I think it still surprises people that I love sports so much. So let's talk about you and your journey, because this is what Hustling with Vivica A. Fox is all about. My podcast show is about celebrating careers and letting people know your journey from your perspective, not people cutting it together how they want to, <laughs> just celebrating your career and just keeping it real. All right? Yeah. I mean, my journey is... I guess the way I would describe it, other than being blessed, other than being fortunate, is that I was it was unique in the sense that I knew in high school that I wanted to be a sports writer. And it's really? the only I did. Yeah, I knew very early. So that obviously uh, paid dividends for me because I was able to get a, a jump um, to get started really fast. I mean, I wrote for my high school mm. newspaper and covered sports. Oh. Um yeah. And then when I was in high school, I worked in um, we have two papers in Detroit, the Detroit Free Press and the Detroit News. And I worked for the Free Press in high school, answering phones in the sports department. Uh, I got to college. I went to Michigan State. I majored in journalism. I worked for my college newspaper um, the entire time I was there. I had five internships. I interned in. Uh, five. Yeah, 
Five. I was the perennial intern girl. I was out there slanging. <laughs> I was out there slanging these articles. Let me tell you. <laughs> okay. Now, were you were you ever an athlete? Yeah, I was. So in high okay. school, I played fast pitch softball, and I was always the neighborhood tomboy growing up. So I was out there playing baseball, basketball, football with the boys, and um, a lot of a lot of the the boys in my neighborhood they respected me because I was an athlete. I just wasn't out there just somebody playing at being an athlete. Exactly. Like, I really I really could get down. And I could really do my thing. And so when people asked me later in life about when I was at ESPN and they were like, you just hold your own so well against, you know, the men on the desk mm. and, and other athletes. And I'm like, because I'm used to it, you know, like if you grow up as a neighborhood tomboy, you know, little boys going to be trying you all the time. And so all the time. Got, all the time. So you have to learn how to hold your own in the company of, uh, of men in terms of making sure that they respect you and making sure that they understand you ain't the one. And so um, growing up, in that vein, uh, in addition to being led by some very strong women in my family, by the time I got to ESPN, uh, you know, I was I fully knew who I was and being around men and athletes like that never intimidated me at, at all. I because it. I felt yeah, because I felt like my credibility um was just as, as good as theirs. So uh, yeah, so I, I mean this is the only thing I've ever done. And I I had a 10-year newspaper career before I ever got to ESPN. I was a columnist in Orlando. I covered college football, college basketball, mm-hmm. the Olympics, Super Bowls, all that. When Ooh, I was okay, in Detroit. wait, wait. Ooh, wait, because I gotta cover all of that. Hold on. Yep. Now, so you are from Detroit. Correct. Okay. And you grew up like in the hood, you played mm-hmm. baseball. That's how your sports, you wrote in, in, in for the paper when you were mm-hmm. in high school that mm-hmm. then led to college. And mm-hmm. then how did ESPN come into your life? So ESPN came into my life over one phrase. The phrase is baby mama. And <laughs> I know you're like, what the hell? Okay, so. Yes, um, do explain. I will explain. Uh, I'm not a baby mama and not that I have anything against baby mama, but that's not where I was going with this. So okay. I had written, a, I had written, um, I, I'd, done, I'd done a Q&A when I was in Orlando. Um, it was a simple concept I came up with where I would get in the cars uh, with athletes and as they were driving, I would interview them, ask them about life, ask, ask them about different things. And we record the conversation for video, you know, put it on the internet and then I do a write-up about everything. So the, okay. the first athlete I did was Willis McGahee, the former Miami running back, who then went on and uh, was a, a running back in Denver and a, and a couple other places. Mm-hmm. So we're in the car, and I know Willis had a couple kids and by a couple different women. And so I was <laughs> just jokingly, I said, Willis, what's um, you know what's worse, a baby mama or or ex wife? <laughs> and he had never been married. He was like, oh, baby mamas are the worst. And then he just started going in. He was like, man, I'm young. I'm in Miami. I really need to chill out. He gave a very funny answer. So oh. we we published it because we thought it was good. Well, the editor of the paper, this old white woman, was not having it, and she saw baby mama in the paper and flipped the fuck out. And she was Wait. like, that's the yeah. Was that was that before they knew in our culture that it's kind of like almost a term of endearment? Like, yes. Yes. She right. didn't know that. I obviously mm. knew that. And at the time, I'm 28 years old. So it's like this is how my people talk. And right. this is in all the pop culture references. But this I mean, this woman was like, you know, twice my age easily. And so she had no idea. And this is what I say to people about mainstream media is that despite what you may think you should know by what you see is that it's, it's very conservative. And so the idea of baby mama being in a newspaper was like really offensive to her. Like I got written up for that shit. <laughs> so, did you really? I did. I got written up for it. And so, um, you know, I had to now, apologize. 
Mm-hmm. But what what but what was the response when then it came out and then it took off? Did well, she then have to come back and apologize to you? No, she never did. The story went viral mm-hmm. because of his answer. Exactly. A ESPN executive saw the story and laughed. Um, uh-huh. A black executive. And so it just so happened that executive knew um, a friend of mine who later became uh, my manager. And he reached out and he, uh, me and this executive, his name is Keith Cleanscales, and he used to run um, Savoy and Vibe, like, mm-hmm. you know, deep in the culture. And he was a big time executive at ESPN. He and I had dinner. He brought me in for an interview at ESPN and the rest is history. So I got there literally because of the word baby mama. Ah, so uh, when you got to tell her you was moving on, what was her reaction to that? That, yes, I'm moving on because baby mama is okay with ESPN. (laughs) Well, I mean, put it this way. They all had resigned themselves once because word kind of got out that ESPN was interested. And I, you know, I'm always upfront about these things. So before I left for the interview, I told them, hey, I'm just so you know, I'm going to Bristol to interview for a job at ESPN. And the job... Yeah, the job, by the way, it wasn't to be on TV. It was to be a columnist for ESPN.com. Okay. So I let them know. And they had no expectation I would stay because at that point, I'm not that it's any different now, but ESPN was really the pinnacle for where a lot of people wanted to uh, land and where they, you know, if you're in Absolutely. sports, that was the destination spot. The irony, it was just ESPN was never my destination spot. The, the hmm. my My dream job was working at Sports Illustrated. So it yeah what? yeah yeah I want to work at Sports Illustrated because I'm a I'm a writer and so oh okay yes you, right, you wait a minute so you never was drawn to in front of the camera you've always been drawn to never. behind the camera but you never. know never I find that to be fascinating because you're so comfortable in front of the camera well I think it was because it was never something I wanted to do therefore. Mm. Oddly enough, you know, usually this isn't uh, this phrase isn't used in a positive way, but, you know, they say ignorance is bliss. It actually Mm. worked for me because I didn't take TV that seriously from day one. I just stepped in there being myself because I wasn't worried about impressing anybody. I wasn't worried about, oh, I'm trying to land this job. Like, I'm just like, I'm going to just come in here and just be me. You either either like it or you hate it, you know. And so um, because I always showed that, you know, comfortability with being myself. Mm. That actually worked out pretty well for me. But no, I never wanted to be at ESPN. Um, And so it was just really ironic, not just the way I wound up being there, but the fact that it wasn't my dream job and neither was television. Uh, Television wasn't on my radar at all. I mean, this is back during a very different time in our profession because Mm -hmm. there was like almost a bloods and crips separation between print and and (laughs) broadcasting. Print people, we, I mean, we was on one. We always thought we were smarter than people on TV. We're just like, ah, they not real journalists. We the real journalists. We out here in the trenches, you right. know, getting all the interviews. It's us, you know. So nobody wanted to be on TV. If you were print, you were print. And if you were on TV, you were on TV. And so I looked down on people um, who were uh, in broadcast. Not looked down and didn't think that they were getting yes. this job. But I was just like, no, no, no. The real journalists ascribes that it is us. So... Well, that uh, so was no. back then because that, that completely was has changed now. Oh, yeah. Right? Now, yeah. now everybody wants to be on TV and I'll be 100 percent candid. And especially since, you know, there's a podcast about hustling and grinding and, and sharing those experiences. The only reason I got in TV was because of the money. That was the only reason. <laughs> all it took, Vivica, was one check. I got one check for a week on TV and I was like, oh, I've been bullshitting. I need to Okay, oh, okay, I'm tripping. I am really tripping right about now, okay? What? You're like, wait, wait a minute. There's a hot, go 
don't want two more zeros behind my check. Right. So let's talk about your journey there. So you went in there writing. Then mm -hmm. who was the first one to say, let's try you in front of the camera? So um, you, I think they read some of the things that I wrote and because I, you know, was a good writer, had sharp opinions, precise and concise opinions that could generate not just attention, but thought and all of that kind of stuff. I started doing, um, I think it was Stephen A's show. Okay. Stephen A. Smith, oh, wow. quite frankly. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Well, that's all long, how far back we're going because Stephen A wanted to create a pathway for Black journalists because uh, he had this, this segment on the show called The Back Panel. And it was usually, I mean, it, it pretty much was all Black journalists and columnists from across the country because Stephen A, um, maybe a lot of people don't know this, but he wasn't born on television. He used to be a newspaper writer and columnist himself. That's wow. how he. That's how he got to become Stephen A. Smith is he covered the NBA for a long time. He was one of the best NBA writers in the country. And so, um, so Stephen A. And then I started doing outside the lines and I started doing the sports reporters and around the home. Uh -huh. Yes. You know, making the rotation uh, first take. And um, like I said, it just took one check. Cause I remember the first week I did first check, I'm mean, not first check, first take the first uh, week I did it. We're talking about for the whole week, we're talking maybe about 40 minutes of television for the whole week because mm. first take was not all debate then. It was actually a full morning show. So the debate segments were maybe 10 minutes each segment. And it was like three debate segments in the show. So it, it's not a whole lot of, of TV that you're doing over across the week. And uh, I didn't even know I was supposed to get paid for it. <laughs> and next thing I know, uh, next thing I know, like a $3,500 check showed up. And I was like, wait, they make this in a week? Like, I was like, you, you was like, oh, oh sign, I me sign, sign me up. Sign me up for this little TV? I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> now, how did you feel that when they then offered you your own show? So because first it was his and hers, right? It, it was, was yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, I guess to take it all the way back, we were for a few months. We were called Numbers Never Lie because that was the okay. original show, and then they changed it over to his and hers because mm -hmm. me and my former co-host uh, Michael Smith, we had a podcast by that name, so they wanted to kind of merge it because you know the show Numbers Never Lie was kind of an analytics-based show that didn't really, um, it wasn't really who we were. We made it work. But then they decided to do a total rebrand, name it his and hers, name it after us, put our likeness in the show and everything. So it became fully ours. But by the time that that opportunity came up, um, it was a really interesting time because I was thinking that I was going to have to leave ESPN in mm. order to make this television stuff happen. Because um, at that point, I wanted to make the full time switch to TV and stop writing. Because, mm. uh, you know, as I said, it was it was the money because Matt Lauer has signed a new contract and it was big news everywhere. Maybe. You let's say let he me, was twenty five million a year. And I was okay. like, they would pay that. <laughs> yes. I, I, and can I tell you that now me and you got that in common because I had my own talk show for a while, too. I remember. And it was like when you found out, like, how much money they making that early in the morning? But you know what I'm saying? the sacrifice of having to be in the studio at 6 a.m., you know, you got to kind of weigh that out, too. There's huge sacrifices. But it's like, hey, but I could do that for a little while. I could go and stack them coins, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is TV. You, I mean, TV is a grind and to do it yes, every it day. Yes, it is. Yeah. And especially it's a difference when you're doing a morning show, because like you said, you look at somebody like Robin Roberts, right? I mean, I'm sure Robin Roberts probably has to be at work at like 4, 430 in the morning. Every exactly. Day. OK. Exactly. And, yes. And, and, you do that for 10, 15 years, five years, whatever. It, it's a big sacrifice on the rest of your life. Now, exactly. don't get me wrong. 
if somebody out there would like to pay me $20 million a year, I'd wake up at 2 a.m., okay? I'm like, <laughs> I don't care. It's like, whatever. You're but, like, let um, me weigh this out. Look, right. sleep, sleep or them coins again. Or I'll be coins. all right, right. See what I'm saying? So by the time his and hers came up, as I said, I was thinking about that maybe I should um, really consider leaving ESPN because, you know, you have to understand that um, women, for the most part in sports media, have been pushed to certain roles. And, and not always pushed, but you saw where yes, yes. the opportunities were. So you see women a lot hosting shows where they're teeing up other men, right? You mm-hmm. see a lot of show, you see women, obviously, as sideline reporters, and which I've done before as well. And so there's these very <gasps> specific roles that they have for women. What you don't see a lot of is women driving a show with their own opinion. Exactly. That was the beauty of his and hers. Like Mike mm-hmm. and I were both from the newspaper world. He used to work in the Boston Globe covering the Patriots. You know, I worked at three different places covering a variety of different sports. And so we came to the show on equal footing. All right. Like we Mm -hmm. both had been reporters in the game. We both had our own sources. We both knew athletes. We both knew coaches. So our conversations were different. And so Mm -hmm. here I am, a woman driving a show with my opinion. And what I loved about doing his and hers is that they always had to be a hers. Meaning there always had to be a woman who could sit there much like you did and tell people what she thought about what was happening in the world of sports and not just be the vehicle to, um, to, uh, have the token there. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So question, were you one of the first females to have your own show on ESPN? Well, um, I think, well, black women, I think, I mean, yeah, yeah, for, for, as a black woman, I think so. Like, obviously Robin Roberts had been there, but Robin Roberts was a sports center anchor. So that was different. That's totally different. That's totally different. So in the commentary lane, opinion lane, I'm, I think it was me. Okay. Yeah. So then after his and hers, then you move on to the six, right? Yep. Then we move on to sports center, which again is another career turn, um, I've ever that I never saw coming. I mean, my career is broken up into two pretty interesting halves. The first half of my career, I plotted that out very methodically. Like, I know I want to go to newspapers because I'm thinking about Sports Illustrated. I know I want to do this. I know I want to do that. I got to do this. And then once I got to ESPN, pretty much every job I took while there and probably even then since were jobs that I never expected to have, positions I never would have dreamed of. So being a sports center anchor, again, mm-hmm. one of those premium jobs in sports that a lot of people don't get to do and certainly not a lot of black women. Um, yes. I, it was, it was such a shock because that was a job Mike and I did not, we didn't campaign for, we didn't try to get, they literally came to us because of the crazy things and the fun things and the yeah. um, thoughtful things we were doing on his and hers. And they wanted to put some new life into the six o'clock sports center. And they asked mm-hmm. us to do it. And, um, you know, we used to have this phrase about his and hers. We would say we selling tapes out the trunk because that's how we felt. You know, you t- we, say that for me one more time. We would say we're, we're selling tapes out the trunk. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't get in trouble for saying that, did you? No, no, no. Okay, not good. at all. Not at Making all. Sure. Just, that was the unofficial slogan of our show. And the right. reason we, we said that is because, you know, we we flipped a podcast into a TV show. And then now we're going to flip it into doing a six o'clock sports center. Right. Because that's what selling tapes out the trunk is all about. Masterpiece sold tapes out the trunk. He and did. then went on to become... To- a big Everything. music mogul. Right. Yes. Correct. And so we had that same mentality. So when we did his and hers, you know, we didn't have a lot of marketing behind us. We didn't have a lot of promotion. We didn't have our own commercial. We didn't have any of the things the other shows had. And that put a good chip on our shoulder where we was just like, we out here hustling, slanging these opinions. And so we get to Sports Center 
totally different ball game. We're in a $125 million digital studio coming from a closet that everybody had forgotten about in terms of a studio. We have our staff triples overnight. Wow. Um, we get we get two commercials out the deal. They put us everywhere. Our, our faces are everywhere for months leading into the show. And wouldn't you know, worst job I ever had at ESPN. Worst one. I was going to say now, because you know ESPN has an enormous impact on the culture. I mean, ESPN... I can just remember it uh, when it used to come on and it was grainy and it was like, you know, sports center. And to now it's like, you know, high def, you know, on all day, 24 seven. You said that it was the worst experience. Why was it one of the worst experiences? So um, when we when we got the job and, you know, they gave us some nice fat contracts uh, that that life changing TV money I was looking for when we started the creative process. We had a lot of trouble being on the same page with the executives about what the vision for the show should be, what the identity of the show was. Exactly. You know how these, you know, creatively, we were not in the same place at all. You start bumping heads. We did. which, Which then makes for an unproductive environment. Correct. And so the person that we wanted to be our coordinating producer, which is the equivalent of a showrunner, is was somebody that. They didn't, she was already at the company and we know we needed her, a black woman. We're like, we need her. She is the right person for this job. And they had told us that we would have a lot of input into who would be overseeing in charge of our show, working with us day to day. And that turned out not to be true. And so, um, and this is no disrespect. Some of the people we were able to bring along, it was some, some uh, senior producers we were, that we had, um, had relationships with who knew us, who knew the type of show we wanted to do that we were able to bring it to the fold. But the main key person, the head coach we needed, we didn't get. And we got off to a bad start Mm. and uh, we didn't have a lot of rehearsal time. You know, um, the shows that are on air now that people see like Scott Van Pelt, he has a great sports center that he hosts. Scott got about a year to do, to put his show together before he ever knew it. Yeah. He got, he got a while. Um, Get up the, the show that's hosted by Mike Greenberg. Greenberg got about a year. Greedy got about that to to put his show together. We got two months, four rehearsals. That's not that's not gonna work. And so, um, and did you, know, you tell them that? Did you? Oh say, yes, hey, we did. I, they, I, I, we need we more time. We need more more prep. And what was their answer? Their answer was they wanted to take advantage of Super Bowl ratings. The Super Bowl was the first weekend in February, and in sports, the day after the Super Bowl is a huge rating day. Ratings yes. day for all sports programming, right? Because people want to talk about the game. And if it's like a ridiculous game, you know, that'll carry you for like three or four days of that week. But typically there are huge ratings after the Super Bowl. And that's what they that's what they wanted to take advantage of. And both of us were of the opinion that we would rather wait and start off. You know, they were trying to avoid the sports slow season, which is the summer. They were trying okay. to avoid that. Yeah. But I was of the opinion that we should start in the fall with NFL season. So that would have been a good five or six months. And I think we would have been able to come up with a better collective vision for the show, but that wasn't possible. So we got off creatively uh, a bit on the bad foot. Um, and so we with were your in, showrunner with your showrunner um, with, with our showrunner, the people above him, the people mm-hmm. above him. Because, I mean, you know, the thing about Sports Center is ESPN's baby. There mm-hmm. are a lot of cooks in the kitchen, a lot of layers of management that watched this show and everybody got an opinion about how the show should be. I and know what that's like. You know what that's like. And when yep. it's, when they're not date, they're day to day. When they're not in the trenches with you, 
it gets annoying to yes. hear all these opinions when to they're not To say the there. least, yeah. To say the least. It's like, oh, here comes such and such. Where they been at? Precisely. Or, you know, they're, it just, yes. and, and, and look, we were, we were happy that we had the opportunity and um, I think everybody wanted the show to succeed. So we didn't feel like they, they were trying to set us up for failure, uh-huh. but they didn't understand that just the, the mechanism in which they operate with sports center was setting us up for failure. And so mm. in real time, we are learning on the fly, what works, what doesn't work, doing a lot of tinkering. And it was a very um, unfortunate confluence of events because the first two months we were doing the show, ESPN laid off um, a number of people. And I don't know how this, you know, ESPN was already caught up in a very um, uncomfortable narrative about ESPN being too liberal, too political, all those things, because, you know, the Colin Kaepernick stuff had happened. That's obviously a big story that we have to discuss. Yes. Um, there were some other things. And then there was a lot of people on in the right wing that were coming after ESPN. Actually, their origination was Caitlyn Jenner, because when they gave mm-hmm. Caitlyn Jenner the Af- Arthur Ashe Courage Award, that created a huge level of backlash and against ESPN from from bad faith actors, as I like to call them. And so <laughs> ESPN was caught up in this political drama where everybody was saying that the network was too political, too left-leaning. And I got to be honest, Vivica, like the only reason that those people were saying that is because the face of ESPN was changing. Suddenly you had black faces. You had right. You had right. people they weren't traditionally used to seeing were getting their own shows. It was us, Bomani Jones, like a lot of people, you know, Sarah Spain. So suddenly the composition of ESPN is changing and oh, it's the marginalized people's fault all of a sudden that, mm. you know, this backlash is coming. So I thought that was very interesting. So nevertheless, all mm. this is happening. They lay off people and suddenly there's this narrative that exists that Mike and I get, get paid too much damn money and we're the reason that ESPN is sinking. So we, our show was getting a lot of negative attention and it was hard. I mean, it was really hard. We're having creative fights. We're getting all this unnecessarily uh, unnecessary uh, attention to the show, negative attention, and a lot of that attention that we were getting, the bad attention, it was it was racial in my opinion. And so, because of all of that, this is the work environment, and I'm miserable. And I'm just like, yes. this ain't the shit I signed up for. <laughs> I know that's right. Now you received a backlash when you took a stand mm-hmm. on the uh, with the Colin Kaepernick issue. What was that experience like for you? to say, hey, I am going to stand up for what's right and what I believe in. And uh, and I don't have a problem rocking the boat, you know? Yeah, I mean, it, it's tough because, and not that ESPN ever said to me, like, hey, you need to quiet down or, um, you know, m- maybe be less forceful in your opinion or, you know, soften things. Nobody ever said that. Um, but as the old adage goes, was understood, need not be said. And so not that I softened or changed any of, of what I had to say about the situation. I was very critical of the of the NFL. But at the same time, you also realize that NFL, uh, that ESPN is in business with the NFL. They're a partner. They're a business yes. partner. Yes. Right? ESPN has Monday Night Football. They pay billions of dollars mm-hmm. for it. They are in a business, you know, relationship. So there were certain areas that you knew that without anybody having to tell you that maybe this is not a good area to go. But at the same time, you know, the one thing that I think why Mike and I were so successful is that we we could take or leave what we were doing in the sense like we were never going to compromise who we were 
just to make somebody else happy. That just, right. the, considering the way we got the show, how hard we had to work and grind for it, it's like, we were not going to go out um, being like somebody else wanted us to be. We weren't going to go out on our knees. It just, it just wasn't going to happen. And so, um, you know, the backlash I received from that is, you know, kind of very expected. You had uh, a lot of people who suddenly became the arbiters of, of what is considered America, American, what is, who is considered a patriot and who is not. Oh, and yes. yeah. I mean, all of that started, but you know, I mean, the, the, the Kaepernick backlash, you know, obviously it wasn't as bad as when I had those comments to say about the president, which Let, also now, let's happened. Talk, let's that talk about when him I was now. Now, yeah. now. Now, what did Trump tweet? What what did he say? Let's <laughs> let, let's refamiliarize everybody with his tweet. Because I'm uh, so glad his ass ain't on Twitter no more. They was like, you got thankfully. to go. Yes, yes, thank you. Yeah, I, I think we all um, it, we all needed that that mental health break from <gasps> from the former president. But essentially, our paths crossed because on Twitter I called him a racist and a white supremacist and said basically, not basically. The only reason that you know he got elected is because he was white. I mean, and he was white and in direct response to having a black president who had to be damn near perfect at everything, and it was just as if. Oh, People, I know. Yeah, I mean, you talk. You couldn't even. You couldn't even design a Barack Obama. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Eight years, no scandal, no drama. He got in there and he did the work, and Perfect. it just bothers me so much now for the way that the White House, in my honest opinion, took a, a left turn. Like it went to the garbage. You know right. what I mean? Where the president was saying th- stuff that you're like, wait a minute, this is our leader. So I'm glad you said something because listen. I worked with him on Celebrity Apprentice yep. and the re- my respect that I had for him doing Celebrity Apprentice, when he became president, it went out the door. I, I could not believe this was the same person. But, you know, so I'm glad that you said something. So, so I did. You- and and the White House responded. I mean, first, uh, the former press secretary, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, she said I should be fired for what I said. Um, and then. Uh, I did get suspended by ESPN. And after and during when I got suspended, Donald Trump, um, he tweeted that I was the reason that ESPN's ratings were falling. And he he had two tweets about me, one in which he said that ESPN owed him an apology. I was the reason that their ratings were falling and blah, 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 blah. So. Um, so yeah, so I mean, that, sensitive, so sensitive, isn't he? He has a lot, he of, can, he had he, a lot of time. He can, on his he can dish it out, but he sure can't take it back in. Can he? And no, not the girl. All. I heard your mama was like, "Oh, look here. Let me tell you something, Mr. Trump. What ain't getting right happened?" And so your mom called the White House. My mother called the White House because uh, <laughs> she was she was upset about what Sarah Huckabee Sanders said, um, and just in, in in talking about that I should be fired, and you know, just in general, it, it, it's ups- like I'm I'm still even though I'm a pu- I'm a public figure. By government standards, I'm a private citizen. And so here you have somebody who has the the power of the country behind them suddenly saying your name and attacking you. And it was like release the hounds. And, um, mm. you know, as you know, he has very, uh, very fervent supporters. Um, they were uh, not just, you know, social media but they were sending me letters. I had to cut my voicemail off at ESPN because they were threatening me. They were protesting oh, yeah. outside of ESPN. Like it wow. was just the whole circus came to town. And so it changed my life, you know, forever, honestly, because, um, you know, there's uh, there's no there's no day that goes by where I'm somehow not reminded of that in, in some form or fashion. Uh, we, we are going to always be 
I guess, linked at the hips, you know, to some degree. So it 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 kind of is what it is. So that was, you know, all and and you know, that's why I give you the backstory about all the other stuff that was happening on Sports Center and me being unhappy. So when that happened, that was like, okay. Um, and I knew then, especially with ESPN's response to the situation, which was not um, I thought adequate at all. I mean, they didn't have my back, you know, basically. And so, you know, one thing is that I'd learned in newspapers, and this is where ESPN was very different. Uh, elected officials always go after journalists. Always happens all the time. Mm. But usually, most media organization they draw a line in the sand. They protect their people. Right? Exactly. And, and ESPN had no response when he came after me, and I was really disappointed. I had spent at that point. I've been there eleven years. Right. And you have history with them. I have history with them. Good history. Um, yeah. And so for that not to happen, I was like, wow, OK, that just lets me know, much like if you're in a relationship, time that lets me, it might, it's time to move on. And so, yes. um, you know, I, I got off SportsCenter because I went to them and just said that, like, I'm not happy here. And let's be real honest. You don't want me on this show any more than I want to be on this show. So mm. it's a win win for both of us, because the reality is that, you know, they wanted. You know, I was because of the the Trump stuff is that I was keeping ESPN in the headlines all the time uh-huh. for reasons they would prefer not to be in the headlines. Yes. And so for lack of a better way to put it, I was bringing a level of, quote, toxicity to the brand and I didn't want to be there anyway. So I was just like, hey, let me just go to another part of the company. And so I uh, then I started writing again and just doing TV for shows that I had a great relationship with you know, uh, Highly Questionable and Around the Horn and uh, Sports Nation and, you know, shows that... Yeah, you, yeah, went back to the, you went back yeah. to the drawing board. You was I like, did. oh, I was, no, I'm not new to this. I'm true to this. Exactly. So I went how back to... That? How about that? I went back to that. And even when I was doing that, I was just biding my time because I knew when the opportunity came, I was going to, to uh, ask them to leave. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. Mm. So speaking of good presidents, you got mm-hmm. to, to, to interview our forever president in my mind. You <laughs> got to do a, a town hall with yeah. President Barack Obama talking about sports, culture and social change. What was that experience like for you? Well, um, that that experience, that was actually at that point, the third time that I had uh, met the president um, mm. while Mike and I were on his and hers. We got invited to the White House twice. Uh, yes. They, yes, they have. They have. Um, I don't know if every president does this, but for sure the Obamas did. They have a, a run of holiday parties. That yes, start. I know. Yeah. I went to a couple you of went parties. To one. Okay. Listen, I know everybody missed them old days that the Obamas <laughs> had the parties because now when you went to the White House when Trump was there, you show up and he gonna give you Big Mac, fr- some cold French fries, <laughs> and some. <carrots. laughs> oh no! But Obama and them, it was Mm-mm. classy. There was a hey. man. Oh my God. There was great food. The atmosphere was amazing. You were like, we in the White House. <laughs> great music, all of yes, that. Because, yes. uh, yeah, and then it just was uh, even better. You just got to see so many people from every corner of Black excellence that would usually be at these parties. So exactly. you're getting to mingle with a lot of peers, a lot of people in the entertainment industry. So it, it was great. Um, and so we got invited twice. And uh, the first time that we were in the receiving line to take a picture with him and the First Lady, I did not know 
I did not think he knew who I was. So I'm, I have this speech in my mind, like, hey, I'm such and such at work. And before I could even say anything, I reached my hand out. He was like, hey, from my favorite TV show. And he just started yes. going in and telling me stuff about the show and how much he loved it. Yes. And the same with the first lady. And I was sitting there like, what? Wow. The president I know. I, I know, girl. Same thing when I met him, too. You're so ready to be Mr. President. You know, Correct. he's like, what's up? You know? right. <laughs> he just put, they both do. They both do a great job. Of, of putting you at ease. And yes. listen, um, anytime there's somebody uh, that's an elected official, a politician, there's going to be things from a policy and issue standpoint you uh, you disagree with. However, the one thing that I, that is without question, you talk to anybody who knows them, you've met them, I've met them. The Obamas are good people. They are Thank decent you. people. Amen. And that, Amen. that goes a long Amen. way. All right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And so that was always the vibe that they give you. And it's something that you know is genuine. It's not fake. It's not them putting it's like it's literally who they are. And so yes. uh the second time when we were back when I uh went back, it was it was like the same. I mean, we it was just like a, a little mini family reunion. We had a great time. So when the town hall came up, it was at a very tumultuous time uh, in our country because this is mm. after uh the death of uh, Eric Garner this is when um the the shootings in in Dallas of uh, the police officers this is after Philando Castile a wow. lot of very heavy incidents had occurred and so Obama decided to do a town hall that featured um that had um not just law enforcement those the families of people who have been uh victims of police brutality as we all remember what happened with uh in Charleston with um the, uh, the, the church church the church shootings right yes. the survivors from that church shootings they were there it was very very heavy and wow um he's you know he came in uh it did about an hour um you know answering questions talking about policy because uh, at that point you know you needed a president that not only could show empathy but could show that they, even despite this very complicated issues that we could be brought together. Yes. And um, what people didn't see is that after it was over, he stayed a very long time talking to everybody. And he and I, that's when we got to kind of have more, a little bit more one-on-one time. And it was funny because Dwayne Wade had just gone back to the Bulls. And, you know, Obama's <laughs> a big Chicago fan. That's where his roots are, right? Yes. And he was like, I really want to talk about this D-Wage trade. And I was like, all right. I was like, so what you got? Love he was like, oh, I think this is like, we just going back and forth just talking about sports. And because uh, sports was very much a refuge for him when he was yes. in office. He mm-hmm. didn't, unlike Trump, he wasn't spending all his time on watching what everybody, course. on a golf or, course, or, or watching what, yeah. tweeting or watching what everybody else said about him. Yeah. His outlet was sports. So he watched yes. ESPN all the time because he was such a big sports fan. So it was, um, yeah, for me, you know, you see the people uh, who are listening can't say it. The Emmy, thank you, Obama. Yes, <laughs> he came from it. Hall. Now, speaking of Dwayne Wade, you are now developing a show with his wife, Gabrielle yes. Union. Tell us yeah. about that. Another big sports fan, a huge sports fan. And yes. um, so... You know, once I left ESPN, me and my best friend, Kelly, we had started a production company um, while we were both still there. She's a senior entertainment critic for The Undefeated. And we wanted to tell stories. I mean, the one thing that we were pretty confident in is that we know what a good story is. And plus, we're writers. So uh, we wanted to get into developing television and film content um, and also documentaries as well. And we've known each other since college. I mean, our friendship is going on 30 years now. And so Mm. we wanted to 
develop a comedy um, loosely. And I, I can't underline the word loosely enough because when people see this, I don't want them thinking like, did you used to do that? Like, no. So <laughs> loosely, loose, based. loosely based, based okay. on our friendship. Yes. And it's called New Money. And um, we we had approached Gab about it because we were, by the time we approached her with it, we were, we were friends already. And so yes. we approached her about it because we knew uh, that she had a desire to develop stories for Black women in particular. Mm-hmm. And we were like, we think we got something good because we looked around at our friends, at our, sor- our circle, and a lot of us were sort of first generation just coming into some money at the same time. Mm. And and the thing is, you know, you you you've seen it sort of discussed and written about and on screen about it from a man's perspective, but not from a woman's perspective, because and I know you you can relate is that there's a lot of challenges when you start making a certain amount of money when you're yes. a black woman. Right. We still have family obligations. We still got them cousins mm-hmm. that come out to work. It works. OK, we work it. We work it. No, <laughs> it's actually me. But OK. Exactly. Right. right. Mm-hmm. We still um, have family issues. Um, and then even when it comes to dating is that it's complicated for women when we're in the spotlight and where people know we're making a lot of money. What does that dating life look like for us? Like I, I love it. I love you know it. what I'm saying? I'm. Ha- I mean, I'm. I'm happily married. I was really lucky to find somebody. Oh my gosh! Who, can we talk about that real quick? Because my time yeah. is running a little okay, bit out sure. of you. So you were married to, to put the cherry on top of your story. <laughs> yeah. You were married in 2018. Oh no, my 19, goodness! 2019. Sorry, 2019. You propo- that's you my proposed bad. in 2018. <laughs> you proposed in 2018, and you were married a year later. Okay, y'all was like, "Oh, let's go on and do this." Yes. To, uh, Ian Wallace. <laughs> Correct. Who is this wonderful gentleman? He got you still smiling. Look at he that. He does. Okay. He still yes. has me smiling. Um, so we met at. Uh, we both went to Michigan State. We went at different times because he's a little younger than me. <laughs> I'm a bit. I'm a. I'm a slight cougar. Now you know. <laughs> look, you know I ain't got no problem. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he's about five Ooh. years younger than me. So we, but that's we, all right. Let's share that with everybody. Okay. That the younger guys are liking the older women. You know why? Because we ain't got no problems. And we got that coin. See what I'm saying? They are on, we are uh, we are an untapped resource. And okay. they realize this. Okay? Yes. That you got an older woman, got her thing together, confident, <laughs> whatever. So um, at any rate, we, we met at homecoming. We both went to Michigan State. I went back to Michigan State because I was grand marshal of the homecoming parade. And I met him at the Black Alumni Tailgate. And that's how oh, we started talking. Yeah, that's how we started talking. And we moved was to... It, was it love at first sight? It was lust at first sight. <laughs> It was definitely less than first night. Let me tell y'all something. Jamel, you are my type of girl because (laughs) I be telling people the flesh is weak. The flesh is weak. I've been trying to make sure I do not fall in love with a six pack and a smile no more. I really am trying to take the time to get to know somebody. But mm, if they look good, you'll be like, Mm-hmm. But, but, but you know, you know, timing is is everything. Like neither yes. one of us were looking for a relationship. We were both in different cities. He was living in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. I was okay. living in Connecticut because I was doing TV every day on ESPN. And it just snuck up on me. I mean, I, that's why I tell my girls, it's like, it comes when you least expect it. Real right? talk, real it talk. comes when you least expect it. And so we were long distance until 2018 when we both moved, when we moved to LA together. He proposed two months later and then we got married in November of 19. Wow. Do you see children yeah. in your future? 
You know, it's an open-ended question right now. Um, I'm not spry. I'm older than I look. Uh-huh. <laughs> and look, I realized Halle Berry, I had dropping kids at 50, her and Janet, but... Uh, <laughs> oh, we can't... Oh, listen, don't put any limits on, 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 you know, when you can have a child and how you can have a child. Because, correct. listen, my, that ship has passed for me, but I'm like, I don't have a problem adopting. Or mm. if we were to use a surrogate, you can still... Nowadays, things have changed, you, you know, because I'm the type ha- carrying a baby didn't happen for me. And I'm OK with that because I got right. six car children and all I got to do is spend an afternoon with them. And I'm like, "Ooh, OK, I'm you're right. Good. You like automatic right. birth control. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but listen, I want to want to ask you just a couple more things before I have to let you go. Sure. How have you managed to because it's like talking to an old friend. I mean, we've known each other for a very long time and you're a wealth of, of, of wisdom. How do you stay so grounded and not take the pitfalls of this industry and let the industry turn you, as they say, bitter? You know, well, that beautiful smile on your face <laughs> is still there, you know? Well, um, for me, um, you know, because people, especially when the Donald Trump controversy exploded, people ask me all the time, like, how do you feel? Are you OK? This and that. I was like, listen. Out of the things I experienced in my life, the president talking shit about me would wouldn't even rank in the top 100 of adversity. It really wouldn't. And 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 that's because um, what keeps me grounded is the way I was raised, and for that matter, the things I had to experience growing up. I mean, both my parents are recovering addicts, um, you know, and uh, you know, my mother's uh, addiction. I, I mean, I lived it. I lived it with her. And so, thinking about some of those dark times, that's why I can put. Anything that happens now in perfect perspective, because I know what a dark time really feels like. Okay, so me not getting a job or me being turned down for something or, you know, Twitter coming after me one day or the president talking shit like that's nothing, nothing. And that's not to minimize how those things can infect your spirit sometimes. But I do think it's important that I keep a big picture perspective. I mean, I talk about sports for a living. I don't save babies from burning buildings. It's not that serious. Okay. Um, And I, and I don't get, um, you know, bitter about things. I'm passionate and intentional. That's how I count. That's how I uh, counteract the bitterness because, you know, the reason that I started this podcast network with Spotify for black women Mm -hmm. is we need a a space that shows our full selves, you know, our, our ups, our downs, you know, from wellness to relationships to health, to so many things, you know, people are always calling black women and asking us to save the country, asking us mm-hmm. to save Wakanda, asking us to save everybody. Who's going to save us? Okay. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Who's going to save us? And so I, I think we, we have a tendency to use black women like the mules of this country. And we're so much more than that. And so I wanted to create a space for us, for black women uh, to be the talent, to be the creators and to also run things behind the scenes. And so that is how that's why I'm not bitter, because I don't worry about anymore what they don't give us. I'm trying to create the stuff that's for us. Yes. As they say, sometimes sometimes you you have to chop down the tree and make the, a table and a chair for you to pull up and sit Correct. down and say, mm-hmm. guess what? This is all mine. And I did it. Yep. And, uh, you know, you know I'm going to still keep pressure on the neck. Don't get me wrong. Oh, but yes. Just, yes. That, yes. That goes without saying. But at the same time, I think. <laughs> Um, there are some uh, opportunities there that I want to use to elevate and amplify other Black women. 
And then once again, before I let you go, what was the name of your podcast? Tell them about your podcast. So uh, my own podcast is called Jamel Hill is Unbothered. It's on Spotify. And um, as I mentioned, I I have created a podcast network with Spotify, which is called the Unbothered Network. Yeah. I hope to uh, license and also um, produce some original podcasts, again, featuring Black women for Black women. Okay. And so um, tweet by us. For us by us. Simple concept. So yeah, I've been the as you know, podcasting is such a great um it's such a great medium because you get to have conversations like this. Yeah. People get to really get intimate with them and and you get to learn things. And I I learned so much from the guests that I've had on there that have across the political spectrum, the entertainment spectrum. And so it's really been a treat. And it's um it's something that I, I truly it's truly, um, uh, I wouldn't call it a labor of love because labor mm-hmm. implies something negative, but it, it's something that I just love doing. I love it. I love it. Well, that leads us perfectly into today's hustle hack. Today's hustle hack is hashtag unbothered, like my girl Jamel Hill is. Y'all, you can't stand on the sidelines watching what happens and let people run over you. You got to stand up and speak out. Don't be afraid to stand up and speak out for what is right because things are happening on a daily basis. If you don't stand for something, trust me, you will fall for anything. So darlings, just go out there, create things for yourself, be accountable for what you know, and be unbothered by those who don't get you because you can tell them what, put that where? Back there. <laughs> I want to thank my girl, Jamel Hill, for being on Hustling with Vivica A. Fox. Tell folks where they can find you at on social media. Uh, at Jamel Hill, very simple across every platform, Facebook, Instagram, and also Twitter. Oh, well, I want to thank you so much. Like I said, I mean, whenever I see you, I'm glad. Because wait a minute, in closing, somebody tried to tell you something the other day about Colin Kaepernick and what he's doing. And you just, oh. you, 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 be, you be cutting them so quick, girlfriend. You'd be like, actually not. And yeah. so this is all about facts. So I'm glad that it today is. we got to... Uh, Let people know about your journey and celebrate you. You are an amazing woman and continued success. Thank you. And the same to you. You're amazing as well. Thank you so much, darling. Hey, to all of our fans out there, you can follow your girl at Miss Vivica Fox on Twitter and at Miss V Fox on Instagram and follow at Stage 29 Podcast too. Don't forget to follow, subscribe, review, download, and listen to Hustling with Vivica A. Fox available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Until next time, darlings. Bye for now. This has been a Stage 29 podcast production. The podcast is executive produced by Patty Chiano, Laferne Cusack, and Stephanie Kaysen. Our audio editors are Jackson Ruff and Jonathan DeMatty. Callie Kelts is the social media producer. And a special thanks to the rest of our podcast crew, Rwani Horinige, William Cusack, Lisa Clark, Katie Brown, and Morgan Kaler. The Hustling with Vivica A. Fox podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended as a replacement or substitution for any professional medical, financial, legal, or other advice, diagnosis, or treatment. This podcast does not constitute the practice of medicine or any other professional service. The use of any information provided during the podcast is at the listener's own risk. For medical or other advice, appropriate to your specific situation, please consult a physician or other trained professional.